Proverbs chapter 5. Anybody else need a Bible? Raise your hand. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. So often, Lord, we do whine and we complain and we, Lord, we have our whole series of excuses. And, and Lord, so often we just need to shut up and read our Bible. We need to obey you, Lord. We need to learn what you have to say and we need to obey you. And tonight, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to grasp your truths, grasp these things, Lord, apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we want to surrender every area of our lives to you. We recognize that Lord is not just, it's not a name, it's a title, and it implies that you're boss, and that we are obedient, and that we follow you, and that we live for you, and that we surrender and submit every area of our lives, and that includes our sexuality. And Lord, I pray that tonight you'd give us insight and understanding as to how to avoid uh, the pitfalls and the traps that the enemy throws at us, how to express our sexuality in, in marriage and in wonderful ways that you've ordained and help us to avoid those illicit forms of sex that would destroy us. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll help us tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, if you'll turn this up just a little bit. You know, someone once observed, behind every successful man there are two women, a good wife and a surprised mother-in-law. Well, that may be true. But Solomon counts two other women in every man's life. Not his wife and mother-in-law, but the immoral woman and lady wisdom. And they are both vying for his attention. In tonight's chapter, Solomon tells his son that he should shun the immoral woman at all costs and that he should embrace Lady Wisdom. Chapter 5 begins, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding, that you may persevere, that you may preserve discretion, and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. In other words, She's like a fly trap. Ever seen a fly trap? There's a sweet substance that attracts the flies, but the moment they land on the sweet substance, wow, bam, the trap slams shut and they're stuck. A fly trap is sweet to the taste and so is the immoral woman, but once you land on her, you get stuck. She becomes a fatal attraction. Verse 4, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The word translated wormwood means bitterness. You know, the Hebrews used a poisonous herb to keep moss out of their clothes. And it's the same word used here, wormwood. Solomon is warning his son that kissing an immoral woman is like cuddling up to a box of mothballs. Not a good idea. Understand the deception involved in illicit sex. There is an initial promise of pleasure, but in the end, there's deep, there's severe bitterness. Here's a quotation that appeared in New Woman magazine. Listen to one lady's heart-rending confession. She says, I'm 35 years old and have only recently come to terms with the fact that my free attitude about sex has been destructive. After many lovers, three serious affairs with married men, two marriages, one abortion, and herpes, I wish someone had suggested that my casual attitude was wrong. You know, it reminds me of how polar bears hunt for seals. Seals are the polar bear's favorite food. You see, polar bears can hold their breath for incredibly long periods of time, nearly 12 minutes. And so the polar bear will swim up under the ice sheet and he'll start scratching at the backside of the ice. The seals, they hear the noise and they assume it's a school of fish and they think, holy mackerel, or something like that. And they dive straight down into the jaws of the hungry polar bear. Hey, sexual temptation, it scratches an itch. 
It looks fun. It offers an escape from boredom or from pressure. And you're tempted to think, ah, there are no consequences to this. No one's going to get hurt. The folks in the movies who do this, there are never any consequences. The end result, though, in real, in real life is not happiness. It's not blessedness. It's bitterness. It's wormwood. It's mothballs. Solomon continues to describe the immoral woman. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Beware of this woman's intentions. You know, in the beginning, lust has a strange way of looking like love. In the beginning. How often has a girl given in to a man's advances just because he said he loved her? In the end, all he did was use her up and throw her away. You know, a woman won't have a high view of herself if she allows her body to be used by a man for his selfish gratification. What happens to her self-worth when all she becomes is someone's sex toy, a sexual pacifier? No wonder our society today is plagued by a gross lack of self-esteem. People have lost dignity and self-respect because of their casual attitude towards sex. Verse 7 warns, Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. You know, teenagers particularly like to learn through trial and error. And yet sex is one place where the stakes are too high. Illicit sex causes great damage physically, emotionally, morally, and spiritually. Teenagers best not learn through trial and error when it comes to sex. It's better that they listen to someone wiser and they learn from other people's experiences and they take heed to God's Word. He says, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. This is what he encourages of his son. Stay away from this immoral woman. Don't even get close to her. Don't even go near the door of her house. Guys, here is the golden rule for unmarried male and female interaction. You got this? The golden rule for two people who are not married who are male and female. Here is the golden rule. You got that? The golden rule. Here it is. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. I'm going to say it again. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Would you say it with me? Ready? Time plus opportunity equals trouble. Take two normal, healthy people, a male and a female. Give them enough time and provide them enough opportunity and sparks will fly. Hey, it's a given. The two are headed for serious trouble. Take two teenagers, give them enough time and enough opportunity, and there'll be trouble. Give two business associates, one man, one woman, give them enough time, enough opportunity, and there'll be trouble. Give, give two older people, you know, male and female, enough time and enough opportunity together, and there'll be trouble. And I don't care how committed they are to purity. Given enough time and enough opportunity, they won't be thinking spiritual thoughts. They may start out praying on each other, but they'll end up praying on each other. Always remember, time plus opportunity equals trouble. You know, if you're a single guy, I advocate kissing your girlfriend all you want. You guys over here, you feel free to kiss your girlfriend all you want just as long as the two of you are in front of her mom and dad and her brothers. <laughs> Kiss her all you want as long as you're in front of her mom and dad and her brothers. Protecting sexual purity involves time and it involves place. Hey, if there's an opportunity, make sure there's no time. And if there's time, eliminate any opportunity. As Solomon says, do not go near the door of her house, lest 
you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. And here's what's missing from our world's attitude towards sex. Honor has been lost. Things like honor and self-respect and dignity. These are the things that should be at stake when we give away our sexuality. Sexuality is the most important, it's the most intimate part of who we are. It's a part of our identity. Once there was a four-year-old little boy who went with his dad down the street to see a new litter of puppies. When he got home, he was so excited. The little boy said to his mom, Mommy, Mommy, there were two boy puppies and there were two girl puppies. The mother asked how he knew that there were two boys and two girls. He answered, he said, well, Daddy picked them up and looked underneath. I think it was printed on the bottom. (laughs) You know, our sexuality does say a lot about who we are as people. It shapes our identity. Sex is not, as Lennon said, like drinking a glass of water. Sex is more than a biological function. Sex is the deepest part of who we are. This is why sexual expression is the most intimate statement that we can make to another person, even to ourselves. Your sexuality should be so highly prized and so highly valued that you don't give it to anyone unless they back up their love with a lifetime pledge. It should be worth that. Sex outside of marriage only degrades and cheapens who you are. This is why 1 Corinthians 6 calls promiscuity a sin against your own body. It's a sin against yourself. You're cheapening your own sense of self-worth and who, your own sense of self-identity. Notice verse 10. Avoid the immoral woman, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. <laughs> Here's the plight of the adulterous husband. He violates his vow. He betrays his family. Now his expensive alimony and all the child support he's paying out are helping to buy his wife's second husband a brand new boat. Look at the guy. Strangers are filled with his wealth. And nobody here is feeling sorry for you. Because Solomon warned you beforehand. Adultery comes at a cost. There's another price to pay. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. You can get a disease. Illicit sex poses a risk to your health. What an appropriate verse for the era of AIDS. You know, today the spread of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, has reached epidemic proportions. In a March 2008 report from the CDC, we're told that 26% of American women aged 14 to 19 are now infected with an STD. 26%. That's one in four teenage girls now has a venereal disease. Among African Americans... 48% of adolescent girls are infected. That's tragic. That's heartbreaking. Sexual promiscuity takes a toll on your health. It can eat up your body. As Solomon says, mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. You know, today's society, we've broken God's laws. We've thrown them out the window, all His laws regarding sex. And what's happening today? We are reaping the results. We have sowed to the wind, and we are reaping the whirlwind. Here's what our society has said. Solomon, he he wrote it right here. How I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my heart to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Notice this, disregard God's law concerning sex and you'll find yourself on the verge of total ruin. I I read where the Illinois Department of Natural Resources reported that 17,000 deer are hit by motorists each year in their state. 
17,000 deer. And the peak season for deer kill is late fall. And why? That's the mating season. Apparently, the frisky deer are so consumed with sex that they get distracted. And they end up becoming roadkill. Well, Solomon is warning us that we too will end up roadkill if we don't learn how to control and honor our sexuality. We need to obey the voice of wisdom. Notice verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? You know, usually adultery is defined as sex with a person who's married to someone else. But understand, premarital sex is also adultery. You see, sex before marriage is adultery in advance. It's still sex with someone who's not your spouse. You sin against your future spouse when you don't love them enough to reserve yourself for them. Drink water from your own sister. Don't, don't be an adulterer. Don't look for someone else. He says this, drink water from your own sister. You know, if your spouse is the only person with whom you've ever had sex, it doesn't matter what kind of kisser they are. It doesn't matter how frisky they get. It doesn't matter the complications that might arise. Nothing dampens your enjoyment because that's all you know. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a great relationship to have. Comparison is the killer. It's what slays love and enjoyment. It's what breeds doubt and discontent. Drink from your own well and you'll always be satisfied. You know, the notion today that you've got to try somebody out before you get married, that you've got to live with them together for a while, is a lie straight from the father of lies. It's not true. Today, 54% of couples who marry shack up beforehand. No wonder we have such incredible divorce rates. You know, the number in 1960 was 439,000 couples were living together. Today, it's over 6 million. And yet, statistics prove that couples who live together before marriage are at a greater risk for divorce than couples who do not. A Rutgers University study says that couples who shack up are 48% more likely to divorce than couples who don't. As Solomon will tell us later in the Proverbs, Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. When will we wise up and learn that God's word is truth? He says, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Enraptured or intoxicated with her love. And don't be shocked by the language there. Understand, God is no prude. Did you know that God invented sex? Oh my, are you kidding? It wasn't Hollywood's idea. It was God's idea. God invented sex. Don't you be embarrassed here. God isn't blushing. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. You know, God created sex not just for procreation but for pleasure. If procreation was the point, cell division could have done the trick. <laughs> no, he created sex because he wants to bring a couple together in a wonderful intimacy and bring pleasure to each other. Sex is for pleasure, not just procreation. It's God's will for you and your spouse one day to have a thrilling and fulfilling sexual life together. God knows that the best environment for uninhibited expression is in the security of marriage. You know, only a married couple can be truly lavish in their lovemaking. I heard of a movie star who appeared on a late night talk show once, and he was asked this question. What makes a great lover? 
The host was baiting the actor, you know, for some juicy description of sexual foreplay. Instead, this is what the man said. A great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life long and who can be satisfied by one woman all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman. Any dog can do that. Well said. He says, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his past. The ways of the Lord are before the eyes of the Lord. You know, Kathy and I dated when she was in nursing school. And she lived in the dormitory. And in the dormitory, in the foyer of the dormitory, there hung a portrait of a man named Sewell. We kind of called him Daddy Sewell. And wherever you were in that room... Daddy Sewell was over you. It was really creepy. Because you would look up and it was like Daddy Sewell was always watching you when you were there. You know, with your girlfriend in that room. It was strange. Daddy Sewell definitely quenched some of the smooth moves I might have been tempted to try during my courtship with Kathy. It was just creepy. You look at him and, oh, you know, somebody's watching you. You know, I should have realized that it wasn't just Daddy Sewell watching me. Hey, our sexuality is not as private as we think. We're told here that the eyes of the Lord are always on us. He sees us. He watches us, even even in the intimate areas of our life. We're told God ponders all his past. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. Your sin will find you out. You know, the Bible speaks of the wages of sin. Sin has a cost. Sometimes the price isn't due until long after the purchase. But it eventually comes due. And chapter 5 closes. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. This man ends up deceived. Well, chapter 6 begins. My son, if you become surety, or if you cosign... For your friend, if you co-sign on a loan for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. Never co-sign for a debt you were not prepared to pay yourself. He says, so do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend, and go and humble yourself Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Solomon is saying that if you've already made this mistake, before you go to sleep, as quickly as possible, try to get out of your obligation. It's not wise. Verse 6 is a a famous verse. Go to the ant, you sluggard. (laughs) Don't you like his tact and subtleness there? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Solomon rebukes the lazy man who refuses to work or the guy who wants to get rich quick and hit the jackpot. He's after instant wealth. And Solomon does so by pointing to the ant. An ant labors hard and long all summer, storing up food for the winter months. The ant knows to save, and there's no one there telling him what to do. It's an internal motivation. He's doing it for himself. It comes from inside him. He's internally motivated. An ant thinks long range, not just about the immediate consequences, but the ant is saving for a rainy day. And Solomon says, learn from the ant. Work hard. Put some away. Save up a nest egg when you need it. I always tell my kids, there's three things you do with money. You spend some. We all like to do that. We give some. You give 10% back to God and you give to other people who need it. And then you save some. That's a pretty simple formula. What do you do with money? You spend some. You give some. And you save some. 
And here we're told that the ant, he saves his money for a rainy day. Apparently, when Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he wasn't thinking of saving, but hoarding. There's a difference. There's a difference between stockpiling just to show off how wealthy you are and saving for a rainy day. The wise man saves today for tomorrow's expenses. He says, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? You'll always lack if you don't get out of the sack. You didn't need to get up and go to work, man. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need, and your need like an armed man. Hey, if you don't plan ahead, the future will sneak up on you. It'll get you if you don't plan ahead. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Now here's a person you should avoid like the plague. He is an expert at double talk. She never means what she says, and she never says what she means. This is the opposite of the straight shooter. This is the person whose body language betrays their verbal language. Oh, they speak, but then they wink. Implied is there's a catch to what they're truly saying, what they really mean. We're told, therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Verse 16, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, did you know that God can hate? Indeed, he does. You know, 1 John 4 verse 8 tells us that God is love. But there are some things that our loving God just hates. Now, suppose a mad dog breaks into your backyard and bites your daughter. That's horrible. You love your daughter. And because your love is so strong for your daughter, you now hate that dog. You hate the person who's harmed the person that you love. And this is the cause of God's hatred. He despises anything that might hinder or harm one of his kids. And here's God's hate list. Six things he hates. Verse 17 is the first thing. A proud look. Remember Satan fell from heaven because of pride. Pride or arrogance is the source of all ongoing sin. God hates pride. A lying tongue he hates. God demands honesty. Guys, the only sin that God can't forgive is the sin you won't confess. Don't lie, don't deny, don't justify. Confess your sin and God will forgive you. He'll be faithful to forgive you. Boy, God hates a lying tongue. You know... All relationships are built on trust. This is why you're having problems with your parents. They can't trust you. Because, because you're lying. You're not being straight. You're not shooting the, tr the truth. If you're honest with them, they'll be honest with you. No relationship can exist if there's a lying tongue involved. There's got to be trust for relationships to be built. And for trust to grow, there has to be honesty. You have to tell the truth. You know, my kids aren't perfect, and I don't expect them to be perfect, but I do expect them to be honest. They can tell me the truth. Another thing God hates, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates hands that exploit the innocent or the helpless. The abortionist might fit in here. He, he certainly sheds innocent blood. The child abuser would fit into this category. He says, a heart that devises wicked plans. You know, it's bad enough to just fall into sin. But God hates people who sit down and plot and plan and premeditate sin. He says he hates feet that are swift and running to evil. Run from evil. Don't run to evil. He also hates a false witness who speaks lies. Here's the guy who perjures himself. He betrays the truth and his fellow human beings for selfish gain. God hates a false witness who speaks lies. And number seven, in fact, Solomon calls this sin an abomination. He ups the ante. Here is the most sinister of all sins. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking mass murderer, serial rapist, child molester, something like that. No, 
The abomination that God hates is one who sows discord among brethren. Check this out. The church member who stirs up friction in the fellowship, this is the abomination that God truly hates above all other sins. The worst sinner in the house tonight is the person who's always pointing out what's wrong and nursing wounds and aligning brother against brother and sister against sister. God hates the person who rocks the boat and then blames it on the storm. I'm not real fond of that person either, to be honest. He says, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. In other words, listen to your parents. It'll save you lots of trouble. Bind them continually upon your neck. Tie them upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with your eyelids, with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Now here again is the evil woman. This is what Proverbs calls the harlot. Or the woman who after a few drinks starts to act like a harlot. This is the desperate housewife. And notice her ammunition. She sets the trap with three things. With flattery. You know, she uses her eyelids. She she speaks what she... The things that he wants to hear. Figure and flirtation. Here's how she sets her trap. With flattery, with her figure, and with flirtation. Solomon calls her approach the means of a harlot. Here is the bait she uses to catch the flounder. The the guy who's just sort of floundering around. You got it. She builds him up. She flatters him. She knows the things that men like to hear. And she says those things, even if they're not true. In other words, she uses a little crappy to catch a big flounder. She uses flattery. Next, she uses figure, her figure. She paints on some skin-tight jeans. And she wears a shirt that shows her cleavage. And now she's hoping to catch a groper. I I mean a grouper. (laughs) Finally, she flirts and she teases. A wink. A a touch. A little brush up against him. She's trying to tuna him on. She's fishing. With flattery. And with figure. And with flirtation. Now let me say a word tonight to the young ladies in the fellowship. You can be a Christian. You can be devoted to God and yet still use the means of a harlot in your interactions with the opposite sex. What do you use to impress the guys? Do you flatter them? Do you show off your figure? Are you a flirt? I know you're not a harlot. So why do you use the means of a harlot? Are you not valuable enough with a winsome enough personality to attract a boy's attention for who you are as a person? Sure you are. Why do you think you have to flirt and you have to flatter or you have to show some skin? What does that say about you? Expect a guy to be interested in you for the wonderful person that you are. You know, the reason that I fell in love with Kathy is she was the first girl I ever met who wasn't interested in me just for my body. I was so tired of those girls that just wanted me to be a trophy boyfriend on their arm, you know, and this dated me for my good looks. Man, I got tired of that. And I found Kathy, she valued me 
for, for who I am. And she wanted to get to know me as a person. And what did that do for me? Man, it just, it just sent my, I felt good about myself. It boosted my self-worth and my, you know, who I was as a person. Man, that's what you want. Here's my point. If you're not a harlot, then don't use the means of a harlot. Verse 27. Listen, can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Now let me get real bold now. Some of you are on the edge already. You have already gone too far, at least in your thoughts. And you are about to get burned if you don't do an about face. Right now, there's a woman at work who's caught your attention. She's attractive. You took her to lunch, and you brushed it off. It's just business. Last week, you gave her a ride home, and you called it being considerate. But you know what it is. You're playing with fire. And if you're not careful, if you don't make an about face right now, you're going to get burned. You can't play with fire for long and not get burned. That's what the Bible says. Perhaps you're single. You've met a nice girl. You've been going you know, out on dates and then you go back over to her apartment to watch some movies on television. And, and there's some, you know, you kind of making out going on and all. And, and supposedly it's under control. But let me tell you, you too are playing with fire. And you can't play long with fire and not get burned. I don't care who you are. No one is immune. If you put Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and gave them enough time and enough opportunity, there'd be trouble. I don't care how strong you think you are. Enough time plus enough opportunity equals Trouble. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. There is a high price to pay for a few hours of pleasure. But there's more. Wounds and dishonor he will get and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense. Nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. Here is a warning. The adulterer is charging on another man's account. And eventually, he's going to have to pay up. Judgment is coming. There is a day of vengeance. That adulterer will have to face the fury of the man he's defrauded. That's a scary thought. Chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your nearest kin that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. You've got two women in your life, guys. You've got Lady Wisdom. She's like a sister. You need to spend time with her and not this immoral woman. Notice what he tells them here. He says, treasure my commands. Keep my law as the apple of your eye. You know, the best protection from sexual seduction is to remember and obey God's Word. Write God's Word on the tablet of your heart. Memorize it. Study it. Read it. Ingrain it in your life. Live it out in your heart. Psalm 119 verse 9 is one of my favorite verses. It asks, how can a young man cleanse his way? And he answers, by taking heed. According to your word. The only force I know powerful enough to tame a young man's passions is the word of God. The cure for sexual temptation is biblical conviction. Now here's how this applies. 
Whenever I see a foxy-looking lady, I view her biblically. First, I appreciate her beauty. Good-looking girl comes in. I think, wow, she's pretty. There's no sin in that. God could have made her ugly. But He didn't. He made her pretty. And so when I see a pretty girl, I usually just whisper a prayer. Good job, God. And then I just move on. You see, it's not the first, and I don't usually say that loud enough for my wife to hear, but, but you know, good job, God. I mean, that's, that's what I do, and then I just move on. You see, it's not the first glance. It's the lingering. It's the lustful look that's a sin. It's the second and third and fourth and fifth and the imagination that runs wild that becomes the sin. But just appreciating a woman's beauty, there's no sin in that. Second, though, I remember that her beauty is fleeting. This is looking at her biblically. Barring lots of surgery and great amount of Botox, in a few years, that pretty girl's going to be all bags and sags. It's just going to happen. Gravity's going to have its effect. Only inward beauty truly lasts. That's looking at a woman biblically. And then third, if I need to interact with that woman, I look her straight in the eye. You know, there's something about looking into a person's eyes that humanizes them. They're not an object anymore. They're a person. They're a real person. And I remind myself that this pretty girl I'm talking to is a person for whom Jesus died. That's looking at a woman biblically. And then fourth, I pray for her soul. The point, though, is to think of each other. Guys need to think of girls biblically. Girls need to think about guys biblically. We all need to think biblically. And how do we think biblically? By getting into the God's Word. And letting our minds absorb, be absorbed and marinated in God's Word. Well, verse 6 illustrates the immoral woman at work. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple or naive, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near near her corner. I mean, here comes Gomer Pyle walking down the street. Some of you don't even know who Gomer Pyle is, but here comes this naive country bumpkin. You know, he's walking down the street. He's unaware of the dangers around him. And he takes the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Here's this guy gets sucked in. He's naive. He doesn't really know what this woman's about, what she's trying to do. He, he really believes her flattery. He, he really thinks that she's, she's being honest with him when she talks about how great he is. You know, he doesn't remember what his mama told him. He just gets sucked in. And, and he follows her to her house. Hey, there's an old Danish proverb that says, no one can be caught in a place he does not visit. Did you hear that? No one can be caught in a place he does not visit. Stay away from the wrong places. As Paul wrote Timothy, flee youthful lusts. That means don't go to the parties. You know Bad stuff is going to happen at those parties. Don't go there. Stay away from wrong places. Remember, time plus opportunity equals trouble. And there a woman met him. with the He's in the wrong place. And so what happens? He meets the wrong person. Seldom do you meet the wrong person in the right place. You meet the wrong person in wrong places. You go to the wrong place, then you meet the wrong person. There, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. In other words, here's a woman who is on the prowl. Here's a lady who isn't looking for a relationship as much as she is a conquest. She's out to prove that she's still attractive and she's still desirable and she can get a guy. Girls, you also need to be careful. There are some guys who only want to date you to prove that they can. 
After novelist Susan Howitch became a Christian, she reflected on her promiscuous past. She said, I woke up and said, what am I trying to prove and to whom? I knew exactly what, that even though my marriage broke up, I could still attract men. The fact that I could control men boosted my fractured ego. This was the attitude of the crafty-hearted woman here, the immoral woman. At times, she was outside. At times, in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now this woman, she tries the ultimate deception. She uses a religious rationale for her sinful intentions. She says, oh, I was in the temple this morning, and I gave peace offerings to God, and and God spoke to me, and, and oh, God must have brought us together. Oh, this is God's will that, that you and I are together. And she justifies her sinful relationship, her adulterous relationship with a religious-sounding excuse. It's amazing how sexual passion tinkers with theological conviction. You know, cult leaders today will concoct all kinds of religious-sounding justifications for unbridled lust. Earl Polk justified his adultery by calling it, quote, a kingdom relationship. Blasphemy. I heard of another pastor who told a woman in his congregation that God had appointed her as his affection giver. Blasphemy. It's tragic when biblical truth gets betrayed for sexual touch. You know, Kathy has been appointed as my affection giver. I've only got one, and I'm glad to have her. She's, she's a good one. I'm getting in trouble. Now, after telling the young man not to worry about what God will think, that's what she don't worry about what God will think. God approves of this, she's saying. She then tells him not to worry about what her husband will think either. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. And he's taken a bag of money with him. In other words, he's going to be away for a long while. And will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The cost was a lot higher than he thought. Now therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by her were strong men. Notice this woman targets strong men. Men who are committed Christians. She gets her kicks out of bringing down men whom God has raised up. Don't think it can't happen to you. Solomon ends chapter 7. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Hey, he thought he was going to heaven. But in reality, she was sending him to hell. In chapter 8, Solomon again personifies wisdom. And it is spoken of as a she. Embrace lady wisdom, not this immoral woman. Wisdom is the real beauty. Wisdom is the girl of your dreams. Hey, tonight, listen, let me fix you up with wisdom, okay? Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. 
She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. The harlot flatters and lies, but wisdom always speaks the truth. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Notice, the truths of God are plain. And they're simple and they're right. You know, be leery of the hyper-spiritual or the overcomplicated interpretation. You know, over the years I've been amazed at how Christians will mistake the complex for deep. You know, you know they'll hear some convoluted, strange, twisted teaching or argument and they get impressed. Well, that's so deep. It's not deep, it's just twisted and convoluted. Hey, just because the water is muddy doesn't mean that the pond is deep. Clear water looks shallow because you can see right down to the bottom. That's why when it comes to spiritual truth, the simplest is usually the most profound. Verse 10, receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Listen to wisdom now speak. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. No, wisdom's got, got three friends. Prudent behavior and knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I, I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Here, here Solomon is speaking of his own experience. To get wisdom, you have to desire it more than money, yet because Solomon asked for God's wisdom, God also made Solomon rich. Wisdom will make you. It, it, it will provide for you if you listen to it. Now, it's interesting. There are two New Testament passages that speak of Jesus as the totality and the epitome of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, He became for us wisdom from God. Jesus became the wisdom of God. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In whom, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thus, some scholars believe that in the next few verses, Solomon is actually speaking of wisdom as prophetic of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. John 1 verse 1 says the same of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primeval dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Notice this. Proverbs was written around 960 B.C. Here the Bible describes the shape of the earth as round. The circle on the face of the deep. Isn't that interesting? It took science another 2,000 years before it got it right. The Bible knew all along. The earth wasn't flat, it was round. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, 
so that the waters would not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Hey, wisdom's been around for a long time. Don't think that you know better than God's wisdom how you should live your life. Wisdom's been around. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Now here's your homework for tonight. Go back to verse 22 and read through this again. But this time, when you get to the words, me or my, substitute Jesus. And see how Jesus is the perfect example of wisdom. But chapter 9 continues. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. You see, the immoral woman has enticed the young man to turn into her. But here, Lady Wisdom is also hosting a feast. She set up a banquet table. And now Wisdom invites you and I to come. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. In other words, drink wisdom's version of the truth. Don't be a know-it-all. Don't think you know best. Don't think you can mix your own concoction of wisdom. Drink wisdom's, wisdom's variety. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And I was trying to teach a fool and he'll resent your efforts. The wise man though is humble enough to be corrected. In fact, he'll even thank you for your rebuke. Did you hear of the golf pro who was given a lesson? Every time he made a suggestion the student had a better approach. The pro would just agree with him and move on. At the end of the lesson, he charged the guy 75 bucks. Well, well, later he was asked how he could take the guy's money when he really didn't teach him anything. And that's when the golf pro replied. He said, I learned a long time ago, it's a waste of time to sell answers to a man who wants to buy echoes. Hopefully you're interested in answers not echoes. Earl Weaver, longtime manager of the Baltimore Orioles, he once said this, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. <laughs> That's true. Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Wisdom never stops learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, the fear of God is like the respect I used to have for my football coach. You know, when I played football, I was literally afraid of my coach. He had the power to make my life miserable. He could run me. He could bench me. He could decide if and when and where I played. My football destiny was in his hands. Did I fear upsetting him? Absolutely. I was frightened of the man. But there was also a fear not. For I knew that my coach was for me. He wanted me to succeed. He had my best interest at heart. In a sense, I feared him. But in another sense, he was my best friend. And that's the way it is with wisdom. Yes, we should fear God. But God is for us. When it came to instructions from my football coach, you better believe I took him seriously. For one, I didn't want him to be mad at me. He might make me run. And for two, I knew that they would help me get better. My attitude toward my coach was a mixture of love and fear. And this is the fear of God. It's a mixture 
of love and fear. It's a healthy balance of the two. Here's the fear of the Lord. It's a fear and it's a fear not. He says, for by me, wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Wisdom prolongs your life. A scoffer ends up old and lonely. A foolish man is clamorous. She is simple. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple or naive, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Guys, the myth you hear today is that the best tasting fruit is forbidden fruit. Don't believe that lie, not for a second. Stealing what's not yours, biting that forbidden fruit, it might produce an initial rush, rush of adrenaline or pressure, but at the end, it yields hellish consequences. It will ruin your life, so heed wisdom. And that's where we'll stop tonight. We'll pick up next week in chapter 10.